This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the Missouri Pioneer Agronomy podcast. We're so glad you've joined us once again. As usual, I am your host, Abby Korf, Territory Manager on the western side of the state, and I'm joined by Pioneer Field Agronomist Nick Monig and Jamie Farmer. Uh, happy planting season. It looks a little bit different whether you're on the western side of the state or the eastern, so I think we should go ahead and dive right into that because comparatively, Nick and Jamie have have seen a bit different of situations, respectively. So, Jamie, what do things look like on our side, on the western side? Yeah, Abby. Welcome back, folks. So for us in West Central Missouri, at least, things are looking pretty good. We've uh, we've definitely had good fortune this year with being able to take advantage of some, you know, short planting windows here and there with with smaller rainfall amounts and soils that allow us to get back in a little more timely than some of uh, my counterparts like Nick there on the east side of the state with a clay pan. So we're probably and again, this is this is variable across my area, but just trying to put an average from basically St. Joe, 36 corridor, down to about uh, Rich Hill, um, 65, kind of my eastern side, and then over to the state line. So if you're talking about that west central piece, uh, we're in that neighborhood of 70 or 75% planted on corn, and we're probably a fourth of the way done with soybeans. There's a lot of guys got out there early planting beans and corn at the same time when they started. Um, some folks that had narrower planting windows that saw less risk in putting those soybeans out there like we've discussed in previous episodes. So uh, quite a few guys that actually planted more soybeans than they did corn. Actually had one rep there in the northwest part of my territory said he had more soybeans in the ground than he had corn delivered there for a little bit, which was the first time he's really experienced that. So for us, I feel pretty good where we're at. Obviously, as we're sitting here the 3rd of May when we record this, getting some precipitation there overnight. So we're on pause for a little bit, but uh, not too bad for going into May. Nick, what about you? Yeah, Abby, I'd say uh, a different story from my geography, kind of covering from central Missouri over to the eastern side, over to the Mississippi River. We Pockets where we got a little bit of early corn, uh, especially in the central part, and then some pockets along the river. But overall, as a geography, I'd say we're roughly probably 20% corn. And a lot of that probably has happened along uh, the central Missouri in that area. And then as you go east, like Jamie was mentioning, the clay paint area, there's not much done. Still a lot of folks that haven't planted a kernel of anything yet. So probably 20% corn and 5% beans, but there's some wild, wild variation amongst that. Wild variation. I think that's a good way to put it because even within where Jamie and I sit on our side of the state, it seems like grower to grower, theory to theory, it comes to when to plant and whatnot. People have have varied quite a bit in those decisions. So it is making the decision or the call as to where we're at a, a difficult one. So always keeps it interesting, needless to say. Uh, but on that note, when it comes to the corn that we do have planted we're starting to see some of that peak out. We've seen the planters roll and now we're seeing uh, some corn and some green pop up in rows. And obviously that has to do with GDUs and whatnot. Pioneer does have a, a, a pretty handy little tool in a GDU calculator. There's several of them across the internet, but we've got one that's it's pretty easy and accessible and one that we use quite a bit and you all have access to as well. So you can find that GDU calculator if you just search GDO Calculator Pioneer, it'll pop right up. 
So as far as that goes and the different planting windows that we have seen this season, where are we at in terms of GDUs, Jamie? Yeah, so if you want to start there with kind of that first window, so really that weekend before Easter, maybe even the Friday prior to that, you know, a lot of that stuff's out of the ground. So just for reference, we'll just use Central Missouri. So uh, an April 11th plant date has around 208 GDUs. That stuff's out of the ground, at least from what I've seen. I've got a lot of that that looks really good. You know, the planting date uh, seems like uh, we avoided quite a bit of that chilling risk, any of that concern we had. Uh, we had a really warm Sunday there that, that weekend before Easter. But not everyone had ground fit enough to plant in this window. You know, so for my side of the state, we had several that did, and uh, they were rewarded to be able to go ahead and get that corn in the ground there for that. Um, so that stuff's cooking right along. So I've got some corn in my geography that's pushing on uh, V2, um, likely going to roll into V3 here this week. So that stuff's going to ratchet right along. So we need to keep growth stages in mind and any of that uh, any of that herbicide programming that's that's kind of a row and go or anything like that. We need to get after it whenever we've got fit fields to get back in there and get that done. If you push a little bit later there, so that corn planted on like say the 23rd of April in central Missouri has around 97 GDUs to date. So just a reminder, like we mentioned, you need around 120 GDUs to get corn out of the ground. So this corn had the luxury of a couple of those 80 degree days on it right after it got in the ground, which definitely helped it. It should be getting close to spiking through the ground. Like I mentioned, need around 120. It's sitting there just under 100. The warmer temperatures that we've got forecasted here the end of this first full week of May should bring that stuff right on through. So uh, keep keep an eye on that. If you see some gaps or something, obviously that's that's where you want to dig up and see what's going on. And then push in here just more recently, so corn planted on the 27th of April in central Missouri has only had around 58 GDUs to date. So this corn should should look like it's getting going as far as if you're digging it up, what to look for. So a small sprout, small root on it, roughly a quarter inch, but that's obviously going to vary based on your residue, what that topography's like, differences in soil moisture, uh, soil temperature for sure can can cause some differences in what you'll see there but that corn has a ways to go so thinking about the way the forecast looks for the end of the week that's definitely going to help it should bring it right on through there as well so for the most part that stuff planted very early there looks really good out of the ground have not run into any chilling injury risk uh, that i've seen the stuff here planted recently obviously not ideal conditions that we're sitting in but forecast looks favorable to get some heat and get that stuff coming so let's back up just a little bit GDUs. In a world full of acronyms, it's one of them. Tell us what what it means, what it is, Nick. So great question, Abby. A growing degree unit uh, with corn is just a way that we can base its stage. So corn is very driven by heat units or growing degree units. So we can tell exactly where it's at in the stage by calculating those. The low or the base temperature for that calculation is 50 degrees. And then anything over 86 gets capped at 86 because it's not going to grow. If we go to 90 degrees, we still use 86 because there's no more growth beyond that. But it's just a calculation that we use. Uh, corn, we can dial it in, calculate it exactly where that corn crop should be at based on those GDUs. We can get into some things like late planting where it speeds itself up. We're not going to go into that explanation right now. But soybeans would be a little bit different. You know, soybeans do have a heat unit component, but they're more driven off of sunlight or night length. Uh, more so to speak. But yes, growing degree unit just allows us to determine exactly where corn is at in its life cycle based on temperatures we've had. 
Another thing that I'd add there, Nick and Abby, is just that uh, sometimes for us in the spring, especially springs like we've had recently, there are several days that we'll get where we we don't accumulate any GDUs for that corn crop, like Nick mentions there where that base is. So we're just keeping that in mind. There may be some stretches there where we don't accumulate any, like today, the recording, and then also some days like here at the end of the week where we're going to get up in the 80s that we can probably put on there, you know, in the teens to maybe even 20 as we move on into the warmer days and warmer soil temps for that matter. And one other thing I'd add is this GDU calculator that we use is based on air temperature. Obviously, there's a little buffer with that formula because when that corn's below ground still, it's based on the soil temp that we're dealing with. So you can see a little difference maybe on if your air temp says you should have accumulated 120 GDUs, but maybe your residue in your soil temp, you're not quite there yet. So Again, a rough estimate to what to what we use as far as where we should be on growth stage. I want to go ahead and add the the link in the show notes to the GDU calculator if you're interested in, in doing those calculations based on when you were able to get in the field, just have an idea of where you should be at when you go look at said fields. So as we think about the corn that has emerged in that first planting window, naturally my mind goes toward stand assessments. Why is it important to be assessing those stands right now and getting into the field in that way? Nick? Yeah, Abby, that's a great question. So we talked a little bit about stand assessment last time, but I don't need to get really in-depth in that, but I guess just a few things there. So when we assess the stand, we're also not only going to want to assess the number of plants there, but the uniformity and what the size gaps are between that stand. Those are two other things that will help us depict. Uh, We'll have to calculate in whether a stand is worth keeping or not so uniformity we've done some work before uniform emergence we know is more important than even a picket fence stand and that actually can drive five to nine percent of corn yield in our data so it's a really important thing to look at what's the size of the plants within the row but then as far as assessing stands not only for doing the counts but also if you don't go out and assess the stands early you have no idea how your planter performed in season. So it lets you know too whether I need to make any more adjustments for this year or maybe the following year. So if we get into a questionable stand, I guess just for your reference, the MU data that we utilize a lot um, says right now that a stand of 22,000 planted in April would equal the yield potential of a 30,000 stand planted on May 6th. Now obviously this is just using averages, not calculating the way the year is going to go. And those would be on normal yield environments. But you've also got to assess stand uniformity and the gaps of the stand. So if we have a lot of gaps or it's very non-uniform or ununiform um, with a lot of stuff spiking, maybe stuff V2, V3, that's got to calculate into that number as well. Plus, if we have a higher yielding field or a higher yield potential type field, generally we have higher water holding capacity, which means that it's more important to have that stand there in planting date not going to say it's not important, but it becomes less important or less of an effect as if it's a tougher type soil. So maybe you can give them a a look at geography, what I'm talking about, Jamie. Yeah, something that comes to mind for me in my area would be comparing like, say, Multibins, Lincoln County area versus like Lincoln, Benton County area. So the guys down there in Benton County on that soil, less forgiving, they're going to try to get that corn in there and take advantage of beating the heat a little bit and, uh, you know, trying to avoid some of the risks that they can see late summer when the rains are a little farther apart and burning up. Whereas up there around Malta Bend, you know, really great soil, 
way more forgiving, going to allow them to uh, hold on to water a little bit better, much more productive environment than uh, maybe what those guys are used to down south. So there's definitely lots of variables, like you mentioned, that come into how much penalty you have by planting later is definitely driven by what type of ground and environment you're planting into. Yeah. So I just say in the end, you know, you're the best judge of the yield potential in the history of that field. So to evaluate questionable stands, I mean, we can use numbers, data to help drive our decisions, but at the end of the day, you're, you're the one that knows the best about that field. So all that being said, you get out there and you decide that it's not a good enough stand. What do you do? Yeah. So Abby, to that question, I guess there's, there's two real answers. So either number one, you can take it out with iron or number two, you can take it out with chemical. So Iron, generally, the field cultivator is the choice, the equipment of choice, and you just make sure that you rip that stand all the way out. The thing you have to remember with that is you have to be sure the stand is all the way through before you can actually rip it out and then make sure you're going deep enough to actually pull it out of the ground. Um, I've seen people before in the past try to use some vertical tilt tools on it. you got to make sure that it's actually getting up underneath of it and pulling it out. Generally, the field cultivator is the piece of equipment of choice. If you want to take it out chemically, like let's say you're in a no-till or you're in a situation where you don't want to remove that residual with tillage, you want to leave it there, then your best option would be some people will try to use something like Select, which is going to require a minimum of six-day generally. depends what you're using, but what the label says, a six-day wait period to plant corn. Most people this time of year not going to do that. They're not going to wait. So generally, the best thing we've seen in the past is a mixture of Gramoxone and Syncor. Um, I've seen some, some guys take out field stands with 32 ounces of Gramoxone, four ounces of Syncor does a great job. You kind of got to watch weather conditions. You know, if it's sunny, if we're warm, that'll do a great job. If we're cloudy and wet, like we are today, maybe not as well. Um, and then sometimes some folks will sub that Syncor out for Atrazine, but that, that Gramoxone mixture with either Syncor or Atrazine works well. Don't just put Gramoxone in alone because that will not kill the corn. It's got to have that mixture of Syncor atrazine with it. Yeah, you've got to get a little bit of that burner in there. I prefer the chemical version that Nick's talking about there with Gramoxone and Syncor because it gets us in quickly, plants the same day. It also, when you use iron, typically by the time we get the chance to do that, the rains are a little farther apart, we're getting warmer, and now I'm not wanting to sacrifice as much soil moisture, so... Keep all those variables in mind when you're thinking about what to do to terminate that stand. So speaking of things that terminate a stand that we don't necessarily have the same type of control over would be black cutworms, which we've seen at pretty high levels in the past week or so. Jamie, do you want to talk to us a bit about the black cutworm issue and, and what that means for folks? Yeah, so you you made the point there, the moths that lay the eggs that then, you know, eventually evolve into the black cutworms that we're worried about. Uh, the the traps have been catching extremely high numbers of those uh, there that last week of April. So these fields, these malls are, are flying up from the south. They're attracted to fields with winter annual weeds. So if you think about driving around the countryside in Missouri, uh, we have and have had lots of woolly fields covered with big winter annuals. And then even some of those cover crop fields would be of concern too. So when the death of those weeds coincide with corn emergence in the same field, uh, that black cutworm larva can move over the corn as a food source and really go to work in a hurry there. So thinking about some of the thresholds that we deal with when you're thinking about black cutworms, so 3 to 5% leaf feeding slash cutting, 
So you got to evaluate several plants, basically like 50 in several different locations in the field. And if you're at that or above, then a treatment application, uh, most likely a pyrethroid, is warranted. If you still have winter annuals that need to be sprayed going to corn, likely not a bad idea to go ahead and include that insecticide with it. Just kind of a preemptive measure to, to avoid the cutworm concern. Our standard corn seed treatment includes Lumavia, which is an insecticide. It does an excellent job on black cutworms as well, so that's another avenue of protection uh, that you may have out there. The biggest risk really comes from this later uh, May-planted corn that allows for that intersection of when these big black cutworm larvae are out in our fields, you know, so they've hatched and they've grown, and then we have that small emerging corn. So it's not necessarily a great recipe when you're thinking about those two scenarios intersecting that way. So just be sure to evaluate what you've got out there and treat as necessary. Just thinking back last year, had some places up around Bramer, Hamilton, kind of north of state here on my side of the state, where we definitely had some big-time concerns. Cutworms showed up, and uh, and they timed out perfectly, like I just mentioned there. The two intersected, and we definitely took a big hit on some stands. And they can work fast. You can, uh, you can be there the night before looking at uh, what you're losing from a stand potential and uh, show back up the next day and the amount of work that those suckers can do in an evening, which they feed at night, you know, in early morning is definitely impressive. Another indicator the old timers always told me that I think is pretty interesting to see this time of year is if you've got black cutworm larvae out there, the blackbirds and stuff will be all over those fields like crazy early in the morning. And that's kind of an indicator that you might need to get out there and take a look and see what they're feeding on. Because uh, although they do feed on the cutworms, they don't do an adequate enough job to, uh, to work as a natural predator to help save your corn. Makes sense. Thank you, Jamie. Shifting gears here just a little bit, but still on the same note of corn. Nick, do you want to go into nitrogen outlook so far this year? I know we've talked about nitrogen a lot, but where are we? Where are we now? What should we be thinking about? Yeah, so I think that's just something we need to start thinking down the road a little bit. I know we're all focused on planting corn right now and getting the rest of any pre-plant nitrogen on that still needs to go on, but you need to start thinking down that road. Obviously, May and June typically determines how much nitrogen loss we have. You know, when we tend to warm soils up a lot and we get a lot of rainfall like we did last year, especially the first part of July, we'd lose a ton of nitrogen. So a lot of that's yet to come or yet to be decided. But I guess there's a few things that, that I consider right now that give me a little bit of pause for concern. And a few episodes ago, we mentioned that December of 2021, at least in central part of Missouri, was the warmest on record since 1889. We had a lot of fall anhydrous that went on, so we had a lot of warmer temperatures than normal. That means that we could have had some more conversion of ammonium to nitrate, which is the losable form, with those fall applications of anhydrous. Whether or not that's going to be a bad thing, we still don't know. The May and June rains will probably tell us that for sure, but... The other thing, I guess, that I think about, and it's something that you were mentioning earlier about folks on the clay pan geography that I'm in that haven't planted yet, but a lot of that area had a lot of fall anhydrous go on. So if we applied anhydrous in the fall and we still haven't planted our corn yet, it's leaving us a really wide window between application and maximum uptake of that plant. That tends to leave nitrogen very vulnerable to loss when we leave it out there that long. So... I would say that the jury is still out on how much nitrogen loss we're going to have. That still has yet to be determined this month, June, and maybe even July as it was last year. 
might determine how much we lose. So that's yet to come. But things are starting to set up in the favor of having a nitrogen loss year in places where we still haven't planted corn and we put on fall anhydrous. That's, that's just a huge gap. And that's something that gives me a little bit of cause concern, especially after the last couple of years. Yeah. So something I'd add to that, Nick, just, you know, if you're in that scenario, definitely be thinking about lining up plans for in-season nitrogen applications. So again, like, like we've mentioned before, in that May, June timeframe, those rains are really largest drivers on how much loss we have, but it's good to have plans in place, especially if you think about, you know, kind of what our setup is so far. So the fact that new crop corn is well over $7 a bushel, it's imperative for us to uh, try to capture as much potential profit that we can. And then just something else, kind of food for thought here, just to kind of think about how late is too late to try to save you know, that, that crop with a rescue nitrogen application. So we did a study with the University of Illinois a few years ago. They showed that by getting 100 pounds of in on at planting, they did not cause significant yield loss until they delayed the second 100 pounds. So 200 total, they delayed the second application of 100 pounds of in until R3. So, you know, well after when we would typically consider an in-season nitrogen application, when they applied that second 100 pounds of nitrogen on before R3, they did not cause significant yield loss. So, again, not necessarily the best management practice, not something that we want to try on purpose, but it does show you that you should never really give up on a crop, and there's plenty of time to rescue a corn crop with, with nitrogen. I think back even the last year, like Nick mentioned, those heavy rains there, the end of June, first part of July, there's a lot of guys that had over 200 in cases over 300 pounds on in season or, or at least that calendar year in west central Missouri and they lost so much nitrogen in the end of June the first part of July we probably could have gotten a huge benefit out of additional nitrogen put on even after that well after tassel there prior to R3 just based on this data here so uh, just something to keep in mind especially where commodity prices are again inputs are high too but taking advantage of a as much yield potential as possible is is what we're after. So we've shared a lot of different tools that Pioneer has to offer, whether that be the GDU calculator or the digital bag tag, but we also have a tool that helps us with this exact conversation when it comes to monitoring our nitrogen loss. Nick, do you want to tell us more about what that is? Yeah, so Abby, we have a really useful tool. It's a granular nitrogen. Um, It is a tool that you can utilize in terms of monitoring nitrogen where you're nitrogen status currently is for your corn crop and what the outlook will look like. So there's a lot of things we can do to try to monitor nitrogen. Uh, There's been some scorecards developed in the past. I know MU's developed some based on how much saturation we've had and rainfall amounts and what we applied, what form, all that kind of stuff. We can also take soil tests and those cores will tell us exactly on that day how much nitrogen's there, but that's only good for that day. It's only good for that spot where you took it at. The nice thing that I like about this program, and I use it a lot just to verify things myself, is the fact that it takes into account what the soil type is. It takes into account what form of nitrogen I applied, when I applied it, did I put a stabilizer with it or not, what has the weather been to date, what does the forecast look like, what's the 20-year weather history look like, what's the crop uptake look like, what's the hybrid look like, and then probably the most useful part of this tool, in my opinion, is adjusting the yield goal. So we've seen sensors before in the past, you know, like a green seeker sensor that will go through the field. And those things are great. They'll detect where the most greenness is at. And so it can determine how much to put on or not put on based on how yellow that crop looks. That's great. 
the problem that I've always seen with those is there's no way to tell what the weather's going to look like going forward. So there's no way to adjust it based on that. The nice thing about this tool is if we get into a really good year, we've had lots of moisture, we can ramp that yield goal up. So let's say we have a field that normally makes 180 and we think in this year it might make 220 or 230. I can change that yield goal and they'll tell me where I'm at nitrogen wise, how much more to apply. Or if I'm in a really dry year and I think I'm not going to make 180, like 150 is more possible, I can draw that yield goal back down. So it gives us a lot of ability to look at where we're at today, to look at where we're headed, to look at what the forecast is going to be, and I can manipulate with my own yield goal. It's an extremely useful tool. In my opinion, it is something worth asking your Pioneer sales professional about or local Pioneer employee about. Yeah, Nick, the only thing that I'd add there with that is that uh, this isn't necessarily a brand new tool for us. Uh, it's a tool we've been working on, been improving over several years. It's a tool that's been extensively tested, not only by ourselves, but also third-party folks and universities. So even the University of Missouri has done some work evaluating this nitrogen model with some of the other nitrogen models that are out there in the industry. And it's it's proven itself time and again to be one of the best tools out there. So you know, just keeping that in mind, maybe if you hadn't heard about it or something like Nick mentioned, reach out to your local Pioneer sales professional or, or Pioneer employee and, and see what we can do as far as uh, getting you set up to, to monitor that nitrogen on your operation. Awesome. Well, thank you, Nick. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate it. Another podcast episode in the books chatting about planting progress, stand assessments, nitrogen, things of the like. So thank you guys for joining us. As always, if you have questions, our contact information is going to be in the show notes, uh, as well as some other resources that you might find handy here as we continue with the planting season. Find more podcast episodes like this one at podcast.pioneer.com or search for Pioneer Agronomy wherever you get your podcasts, whether that be Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Thanks for joining us. We will chat with you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.